This is Toledo Symphony Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at the world of classical music from WGTE Public Media and your Toledo Symphony. I'm Brad Cresswell, and joining me in the studio today are the Toledo Symphony's president and CEO, Zach Vassar. We also have a special guest in the studio, that is Timothy Lake, who is the Toledo Symphony production manager. And wait for it, I have a fanfare for our special guest... That is that is Mark Stryker, if he hasn't been scared away by that, if he's still here with us. Are you there, Mark? I, I am. I, I feel like I just walked into a scene in Folly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mark is uh, based in Detroit. He's an author, an arts journalist, an arts critic. Uh, he wrote a book called Jazz from Detroit, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Spent over 20 years as an arts reporter and critic for the Detroit Free Press, and it was in that guise in which you had the opportunity to interview Stephen Sondheim, who, of course, recently passed away at the age of 91. There have been a lot of tributes going on to Stephen Sondheim, so we are offering our own little tribute and uh, welcoming Mark onto the program to talk a little bit about his experience with uh, Sondheim. So, Mark, thanks again for spending time with us today. Of course. I, I wanted to call this episode Sondheim by Stryker, which is not quite <laughs> Stella by Starlight, but, you know, best we could do on short notice. Um, before we hear about your experience with Stephen Sondheim, let's hear about you, okay? So we're going to do what, what we normally do with uh, guests that come on the show is we ask them to tell their story. So I play some music in the background, and they just tell us a little bit about, you know, their life story. You can either go back to the very, very early years, or it can go back to last week. I mean, whichever works for you. Let me give you a choice of uh, background music here. There's uh, this piece. There's also this little Stefan Grappelli uh, tribute piece. So A or B, what do you choose? Stefan Grappelli. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry, that was the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that'll do. That's good. It sounds good. So take it away, Mark. Let's hear about you. Well, I I grew up as a jazz musician in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, a place with a great music school in Indiana University. My father was a, a, a distinguished sociologist there, and uh, I was a saxophone player, and and um, was very serious about it and was good at it, and. Uh, but at the time I went to, to college, my father really encouraged me to get a, a liberal arts degree. Um, and if I wanted to go into music, I could do that later. Uh, but, you know, the whole get something to fall back on kind of idea. And so I went to school at the University of Illinois, majored in American history, but I was a jazz musician. And uh, played in my own group, played in small bands around town, uh, school big bands, and uh got to know classical music because all of the avant-garde composers at the University of Illinois, and there were a lot of good ones there in the early 80s, uh, were all avocational jazz musicians. And so I made this bridge into classical music from uh, the, um, the con contemporary music side and then sort of learned the tradition backwards. I went, you know, from the most far-out music you can imagine of the day back to Cage, back to Messian and Bartok and Stravinsky, back to Ravel, Debussy, Wagner, all, Mozart, all the way back to Bach. It's an interesting way of learning the tradition, which had a big impact on me when I became a classical music critic many years later, uh, because I, uh, uh, I take and took contemporary music very seriously. I, I um, never had the idea that, uh, say, a Brahms symphony goes only one way. Uh, there are lots of choices you can make, some good, some not so good, and it's kind of all about how you can defend them and what the music sounds like in the moment. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, in any case, uh, after I graduated, worked for a couple of years as a musician, worked in a classical record store, hmm. worked in a bookstore, and then I went back to journalism school uh, to combine all these interests that I had in writing and reading and and music, and then uh, I had a, a career that went from the South Bend Tribune up the ladder to the uh, Dayton Daily News, and then finally arriving at the Detroit Free Press. Um, the last thing I would say is that um, I really became um, smitten with Sondheim uh, in my first uh, uh, newspaper job at the South Bend Tribune, because one of the things that I did there a lot was 
public theater and did a lot of uh, uh, reviewing of the bus and truck uh, shows coming through town and also Summerstock Theater. Um, and so that's where I first learned, uh, that's where I, I learned company, um, a little night music, um, uh, Into the Woods, all of those shows sort of got into my psyche. Then I've been a Sondheim person ever since. Yeah, that's Yay! wonderful. Now, tell us the story of how you connected with Sondheim, because, you know, I've done a lot of interviews. I usually work with publicists, or I have to go through, jump through a whole bunch of hoops before I can get to somebody. Um, you just contacted him directly, yeah? Well, um, you know, it's, it's, it was curious. Uh, Michigan Opera Theater up here was doing a little night music. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, of course, I immediately thought, well, I, I'd love to talk to Sondheim. But he doesn't, um, he, he didn't give very many interviews. Um, and uh, uh, he doesn't have a publicist. He doesn't have, uh, uh, he didn't have a publicist, rather, and he uh, didn't have any people around him. And the only thing I could think of was to write him a letter. And so I searched around and, and was able to come up with his home address in, in New York. And I wrote a letter telling him my idea, which was, uh, I wanted to talk to him about uh, classical music and the classical music influences on his work. Mm. And um, I thought he would find that interesting. It's not something he, he has, has been asked about very much, if at all. And it's key to understanding, I think, his aesthetic. And so I thought he'd find it interesting. I sent the letter, waited for a couple of weeks, uh, didn't hear anything. And I was, we were coming right up on deadline, right at the moment. Um, I was literally, I was with an hour of having to, ditch the idea and go to a plan B and the phone rang and this voice came roaring over the phone saying, Mr. Stryker, this is Stephen Sondheim. And he, <laughs> he, he explained that he had uh, been in his country house uh, and um, uh, that he had just gotten back to the city, saw my letter and called. And, uh, and I <laughs> the little tongue tied for a moment. I said, oh, this is, this is terrific. Can you give me a, uh, um, give me 15 minutes here to get my things in order, and I'll call you right back. Wow. And, and so I took 15 minutes to, to uh, get my questions together because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't expecting a call, you know, right on the, at that moment. And um, so I did that, and then we had a, a, just a fantastic 45-minute conversation that remains one of the highlights of my, my career. Yeah, and it should be said that uh, he sent you that very nice letter after the fact that that I saw where he said that uh, the interview you did with him was one of the few where, you know, the, the interviewer really got it. It was very, very generous, um, and uh, I have it framed, um, and and I see it, you know, I, I go by it every day, and it's, um, it, it's a treasure to me. I have uh, later learned that um, that kind of sweet gesture from him uh, was not uncommon. He would send books to people, he would send recordings, he would send letters uh, uh, that people came his way. Uh, uh, he was a genuinely uh, um, nice man. Um, yeah. Not every show business is, uh, <laughs> but he certainly was. So he wasn't doing that just for you. But we can say he was just doing it for you. <laughs> well, I, 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 I would say that uh, he didn't do anything. Sondheim did nothing that he did not believe in. So yeah. uh, 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 so I, I, I take uh, pleasure uh, in knowing that. But the, uh, the, the story was, was interesting because he talked about uh, how much classical music has influenced him. Right. Uh, and, of course, you can hear that in the music. His, his, his harmonic language, his uh, melodic language, his, the formal ingenuity of the music is all informed by uh, his early study of, of Ravel and Benjamin Britten and uh, Stravinsky and uh, uh, Rachmaninoff. Um, you know, it's sort of all in there. The, the drama, uh, the structure, the harmonic language, um, the way his melodies sort of um, oftentimes generate from small cells of music to lock into these ever larger and larger um, uh, 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 pieces of, of, of music. Um, uh, the, the, the way the forms of his music go way beyond typical uh, American song form. Uh, all of these things are, are uh, a result of his uh, taste in classical music and um, 
And so we sort of talk about all of that. Uh, I would tell readers, I would encourage readers, uh, readers, uh, um, listeners, uh, that uh, the Detroit Free Press has reprinted this essay. And if you go to, or this interview, uh, if you go to, uh, uh, freep.com, uh, and search for Sondheim, the story will come up. Uh, and you can read this, and I, I, I encourage everybody to do so. Yeah, well, it's also been making the rounds on social media, especially among the, the classical crowd, because there aren't that many interviews out there where Sondheim gets into the nitty-gritty of his classical influences. Um, I, I want to hear from Tim and Zach, but be- <laughs> before I turn it over to you guys, uh, I was really struck by uh, Sondheim saying that his favorite composer was Maurice Ravel, and then for the very first time, it hit me, with Sondheim talking about that piano concerto for the left hand, it sounds just like Into the Woods at that one point. There's that march. Now, forgive my ignorance. I'm not really a you know a Sondheim expert by any means. But that was the first time I made the connection. That kind of thing. You know, it, it's almost a I love it when you mirror. sing music. Yeah, exactly. Don't pay no attention to you know, the, the voice coming from behind the curtain. But um, it's interesting when you when you are turned on to that pedigree and you start to hear it everywhere in his music. These little references, these little bits, especially rhythmic and the way that he melded that with his incredibly witty and thoughtful lyrics, right? Um, yes. l- let me hear from you, Tim, or from you, Zach, and uh, give us your impressions of, of Sondheim and his music. Well, now I just have Woods just pounding through yeah. my head. So. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. Yeah. We're all going to sing the chorus later. Oh, good. Oh, good. I was... I was kind of curious, Mark, because as you were talking, it kind of, your wandering into the classical world kind of mirrors mine in a, in a small way, in that I started as a uh, musical theater actor, um, singing whatever works were popular at the time, or were selling tickets at the time, let a learner in low, and anytime I had the chance to grab onto a Sondheim, oh my goodness, um, it's so hard as an actor, but it's so informative. Um, one of my major impressions of Sondheim is if, if you manage to get the little black dots right, you've already acted the piece, uh, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. Um, yeah. But from from there, um, Sondheim leads me to Bernstein. Bernstein leads me to Stravinsky and Partak, the same names that you mentioned. And then, of course, 17 years with the orchestra or whatever is when I started to expose myself to Brahms and Beethoven, Mozart, Messiaen, all of those. Yeah. Uh, so it so it's, I mean kind of kind of mirrors the same path as that Sondheim brought me toward that kind of work. Uh, well, I, I think that um, you can see. I mean, all of us are products of our experience, and 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 in someone like Sondheim, you see the same kind of thing. I mean, he um, the central uh, um, uh, driving uh, what's the word? What really launched Sondheim? Uh, was that when he was a, a young kid, his parents divorced, and he moved to the country with his mother, and his next-door neighbor was Oscar Hammerstein. Right. Uh, and, and Oscar <laughs> Hammerstein essentially adopted him, uh, treated him like uh, uh, both a son and a, uh, and, a him, and, and he played very strict schoolmaster to um, Sondheim's uh, 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 musical theater ambitions, and he started on, on a regimen of writing uh, writing musicals uh, from his early teens. In fact, uh, Sondheim wrote, showed uh, Hammerstein the first thing he had written, and Hammerstein said, uh, was brutally honest, he said it was the worst thing he'd ever heard, <laughs> but <laughs> but if you want, I will tell you why. And so that started this course of study. And, and from there, Sondheim goes and he studies at Williams College, he studies classical music, mm-hmm. and then later he studies uh, formerly with uh, uh, Milton Babbitt, the high modernist 12-tone uh, composer, uh, who Babbitt, interestingly enough, many people don't know this, but was steeped in show music and knows mm-hmm. that music very, very well. And and with, with Sondheim, he, um, you know, on the one hand, they dissected Bach and Beethoven, and on the other hand, they dissected uh, songs like All the Things You Are by Jerome Kern. Mm-hmm. And what Sondheim learned was that on a structural level, the music is the same. It works the same. 
counterpoint is counterpoint, voice leading is voice leading, et cetera, et cetera. And so when he begins to write his own music, um, he, he, he funnels all of that experience into it. And um, I, I think that's no different. I, I mean, he's greater at it than, than I am or you are or anybody else is. But in terms of our musical experiences and what we end up doing, we are all products of our experience. Totally. That's uh. Whoops! Whoop. I hit the wrong button. <laughs> Remember how I told you not to be mad at me if I hit the wrong button? Let me try again. I'm sorry, sir. That's the wrong answer. There we go. Yes. Go back and do it again, Mark. Yeah, right. that's, that's not good enough for this podcast. You mentioned uh, Oscar Hammerstein II, who was a, a mentor to uh, Stephen Sondheim, and and this sort of a, a role model that Sondheim filled himself later in life for for other young singers. I, I've got a quiz, as we are wont to do, and it's a quotation quiz. I've got three different rounds here. Since you mentioned Hammerstein, I thought maybe we should do the first round of our quiz right now. Um, this is a who said it quiz, Sondheim or Hammerstein, or as my spell check likes to say, Anaheim or Hammertoe. One, one of the, <laughs> don't ask me why. Um, I'm going to read off six quotations. You don't have to say who you think said it. Uh, you have fifty-fifty chance, of course, uh, until the end. We'll go back. We'll come back to it, and I'll give you the answers later. So I, everybody here has something to write with. Yeah. Do, do you have something to write with at home, Mark? Or you don't have to play with us, but if you'd like to, that'd be great. Uh, I'm looking for a writing instrument. I, I didn't realize there was going to be a quiz. But <laughs> that's okay. Don't worry. Uh, no math. I already I covered that with Brad. That's what we do. Oh, thank goodness. So yeah. I do have a writing. I do have a writing implement. Okay. Do you have a protractor? All right. And uh, slide uh, rule. Brad, are we just? Uh, can I confirm these are these are lyrics or these are statements? No, these both? are statements. Right. I believe there may be a lyric or two thrown in there, okay. which, which sounds kind of statementy. But um, I don't know well enough to say either way. So here we go. Uh, first one. Any professional author will scoff at the implication that he spends his time hoping and waiting for a magic spark to start him off. Nobody waits to be inspired. Was that Oscar Hammerstein or was it Stephen Sondheim? You know, I should bring in some music here. This is the closest music I had to send in the clowns. What? <laughs> Okay. okay. You know, That's, he didn't really mean clowns, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I mean, okay. We'll come back to that. Yeah. This is one of his biggest hits, as I hear. All right. Aside from my shortcomings as a wit and rhymester, or perhaps because of them, my inclinations lead me to a more primitive type of lyric. Yeah. It's perfect music for this. Okay. Next one. Everyone speaks and write words... Few can write music. Its creation is a mystery. Next one is, I don't find my life that interesting. The shows may be, but not me. I firmly believe lyrics have to breathe and give the audience's ear a chance to understand what's going on, particularly in the theater where you have costume, story, acting, orchestra. That was number five. That was number five. The final one is this. I prefer neurotic people. I like to hear rumblings beneath the surface. Okay? So that's round one of the quiz. Should we do the answers or you want to wait? What do you think? Uh, If you're rodeo, you choose. Okay. Well, let's do the answers real quick. We'll go through it. Uh, The first one. Any professional author will scoff at the implication that he spends his time hoping and waiting for a magic spark to start him off. Nobody waits to be inspired. That was Oscar Hammerstein. Yeah? Everybody get that? No, I scratched it out and changed it to Sondheim at the last change. I changed it. Yes, and I would say, though, that I was struck by all of these quotes and that um, that either one of them could have said them all. <laughs> they both believed them all, and, and something like that, uh, that little witticism there from Hammerstein is the kind of thing uh, that he told Sondheim uh, when he was studying with him. Uh, and Sondheim certainly internalized that, that, the, that uh, you know, composing, art is a matter of craft uh, and hard work and uh, you know, the inspiration, should it come, it comes. Uh, but 
but you, you don't sit around waiting for the muse to whisper uh, the, 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 uh, the words of the gods into your ears. You sit down every day and you write the music. That's yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting that that they all sound the same. Maybe I should just I should uh, mix it up here and and you know not give the correct answer and see if anybody calls <laughs> me on it. Um, let me give you the rest of these. Aside from my shortcomings as a wit and rhymester, or perhaps because of them, my inclinations lead me to a more primitive type of lyric. I think he's talking about like you know. I used to have a librettist friend who said you had to write in crayon, you know, when you wrote librettos, that kind of thing. You have to make it very clear and simple. Um, and again, that's something that Stephen Sondheim expressed in interviews, but this quote comes from Oscar Hammerstein, okay? Everybody yeah, get that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, and and uh, Sondheim would tell, I, I'm sorry for interrupting here and maybe giving a little bit of uh, context with each of these, but but. Uh, Sondheim talked a lot about the marriage of word and lyrics because he was so great at it. Yeah. Um, often uh, quoted Hammerstein saying that, um, uh, you know, that, that poetry is too dense uh, in meaning for a listener to grasp by the ear alone. So lyrics need to be more re- repetitive. Um, and... Uh, with Hammerstein, if you think about something like, oh, what a beautiful morning, oh, what a beautiful day, you look at that on the page, it looks silly, but you put it to music, mm-hmm. and of course, it sounds glorious. Right. So um, that's where he, I think he was coming from. Yeah, I love that quote that Richard Rogers said about Oscar Hammerstein, said he, you know, sometimes he'd go out and walk in his fields all day or a week before he would even set, you know, the first note down on paper. I'm totally mangling that quote but mm-hmm. something to that effect well and and Sondheim would say um did say that that uh, I, I always remember this uh, words must sit on music in order to become clear to the audience words must sit on music in order to become clear to the audience and and um that's important because Sondheim's lyrics of course are are actually very complicated in so many ways um uh, you know, very deep. Uh, the rhyming schemes are very complex. Uh, the language can be very um, evocative. Uh, you have to really pay attention. And yet, because he, he, he fits those words so clearly on the music, uh, the craft is so high, you can always understand them, right? Yeah. That's, uh, marrying words and, and music is a, uh, is a really uh, complicated uh um, art, it's part craft and part magic, and Sondheim was great at it. Yeah, totally. Mark, I'm going to have you come on for all my quizzes from now okay. on. <laughs> no, it's great, so we can we can talk about this, because that's the point uh, of having a quiz like this, is to give food for thought. Um, there are three different quotes left here, or four different quotes, actually. Everyone speaks and write words, few can write music, its creation is a mystery. Well, that was Hammerstein again. And then the last three are all Stephen Sondheim. I don't find my life that interesting. The shows maybe, but not me. Um, I firmly believe lyrics have to breathe and give the audience's ear a chance to understand what's going on. That's what you were talking about, Mark. Mm -hmm. And then the final one, which is a famous Sondheim quote, I prefer neurotic people, right? I like to hear rumblings (laughs) beneath the surface. Um, Yeah, it's so interesting, and that opens up lots of different levels of discussion. But Zach, I want to give you a chance to chime in here. Um, oh, goody! On, on on Sondheim. What do you want to know? <laughs> okay, um, pass. Yeah. So I I I can absolutely tell you the first time I was knocked over by Sondheim. Um, you mean by his music? Yeah. Or his, yeah. <laughs> he's okay. not he's not racing toward me. No. I was going to say a little pugilistic encounter. <laughs> so. Um, my uh, my piano instructor, uh, who did have a direct tie back to Ravel, so it's interesting we were talking about that earlier. Um, when I was a kid, uh, one day just broke into uh, Joanna from Sweeney Todd, and it, he was so persuasive uh, in this performance <laughs> that you know the little room of his piano studio just turned into this glorious sound world. 
And I, I just remember saying, can we go back to that? What was that? And <laughs> he um, started talking to me about Sondheim. And I remember the next time I came in for a lesson, he had made for me uh, on two cassette tapes the uh, recording of the, um, the original cast of uh, Sweeney Todd. And he said, now you have to take this home and get your parents to okay it because they do swear in the opening. And <laughs> I said, oh. So I... Then you really were interested well, so, in Well, so yeah, this is like, I, I want to go listen to this. Uh, but I remember I gave it to my, my dad and I said, would you have a listen to this? And he, uh, he said, it's fine. I, I don't really like it though which made me want to hear it more. <laughs> and, you know, that opening of, of Sweeney Todd, like there's this, you can almost feel the mists of, you know, London fog uh, through some of the, the music that that opens with. And, yeah. um, you know, there's a very uh, loud shriek of a whistle uh, that, you know, I remember my dad's uh, stereo needles would all go to the, the far right when we would play that. Um, but I remember the, the initial time for me was trying to persuade my parents who were big fans of theater that Sondheim deserved more attention and I remember showing them the cover of the West Side Story album which had Bernstein and Sondheim's name on on the uh, the the record jacket I remember showing them the Barbara Streisand first uh, Broadway album which is basically a Sondheim songbook um, and the the critical thing for me right around this time was that my parents always sat down to watch the Kennedy Center Honors. Right. And that year, I don't remember the year, but it was Johnny Carson, one of my dad's heroes, George Schulte, one of my parents' heroes, uh-huh. and Steve Sondheim. And, and it, it, just an illustrious uh, quintet, as it always is. But the fact that he was up there with Carson and Schulte, I think, was the first time they finally said, okay, this guy is probably worth our time after all. <laughs> um, yeah. And then since then, it's just become such a, a wonderful... Um, opportunity to to dive into, I would say, a, a very thoughtful, very creative mind, um, and you know, thinking about the classical influences, of course, are, are are numerous and and fun to go find. But it's not it's not like listening for you know the classical theme to come in, uh, like we've seen with uh, with Rodgers and Hammerstein, and yeah. Um, it's it's always new creation, and I've always been impressed by that. I was talking to Merwin yesterday about uh, about Sondheim, and you know he and I started talking about Assassins, which is a show he wrote in the early '90s. But what a fascinating concept to get you know everybody who tried to shoot a U.S. president <laughs> into a show. <laughs> but yeah. who would make that a musical? And yeah. um, you know, it's it's it, these are the sorts of things he would do without thinking. Well, you look at some of the other vignette type musicals that he did like company you know or follies and and the the idea of breaking down this narrative driven Mm -hmm. uh musical instead having it be emotional driven or scenically driven the way that we really live our lives you know from day to day I'll, i'll just say though thinking through some of the quotes you just shared i think the um the remarkable thing we see here uh, between Oscar Hammerstein and, and Stephen Sondheim is this capability for introspection. You know, they can look at their craft, they can speak about it very beautifully and with great credibility. It doesn't just happen. It takes work. It takes focus. And they understand, they understood the, um, the importance of, of doing it carefully and doing it well, as opposed to having a surprise blockbuster that everyone kind of scratches their head and wonders how it came to be. Yeah. Uh, so it's not the producers, uh, but it, it definitely is, in every case, remarkable. And I think it's interesting yeah. you chose those two. Um, Mandy Patinkin did a, a really great album uh, just called Oscar and Steve. He will ever be forever remembered as uh, the two Georges in, in Sunday yeah. in the park with George. Uh, totally. You know, there, there were a number of things you said there that I, um, I thought were very interesting. The, 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 the um, you know, the classical music influence in in Sondheim, I mean, in in the music, of course, is there. But the point is not uh, it, it's not great because it it drew from classical music. It's great because it took those influences and funneled them into uh, Broadway uh, yeah. Broadway shows. And that the, uh, his, his ambitions were always to write for Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what we sh- people, I think, need to rem- remember is that he really revolutionized the American musical theater, right? He inherits this 
the Broadway of Oklahoma um, uh, and and remakes the form. So a balancing respect for the past with this modernist idea, compulsion to make it new. And so shows like Company and Folly, Sunday in the Park, uh, they replaced the um, the integrated book musical, um, you know, with this idea of um, episodic structures, uh, and yet those structures are still um, the it's all character driven. So all the songs advance uh, some notion of who these people are, uh, and the plot to whatever extent there is a narrative plot in them. So it's it's a very interesting mixture of this respect for the, the tradition of the Broadway musical while at the same time sort of refashioning it in his own image. Um, and there are very few people in, in, uh, in any art form that, you know, that do that. Um, and, and Sondheim is certainly one of them. I think the other thing that's interesting, we should maybe, I, I'd like to get your, everybody's thoughts on this is the fact that, you know, these shows were not super popular. Right. right. In, in their time, uh, he was not a commercial success. Uh, uh, he was a master, and as as he aged, uh, and the shows were done more and more, I think they became certainly more popular, and they're without a doubt within the bloodstream of American culture now at this point. But they were not popular when they were first. Many of them were not popular in the same way that an Andrew Lloyd Webber mm-hmm. or or a chorus line or any of these other uh, shows of his time were popular. And I'd like to get folks as I thought about why that was. Um, I have my own ideas, but I'd like to hear everybody else's thoughts. Well, I think that, you know, for Stephen Sondheim, the the popularity contest was not as important a factor for him. You know, if he was able to do what he wanted to do, then that's, that's exactly what he did. I mean, you know, he had success with sending the clowns thanks to Frank Sinatra or whoever it was that, that recorded it. <laughs> yeah, right. And, but as far as his other work, you know, I, I've, I've seen interviews with him where he talks about, um, you know, this whole idea of a, a tune that's hummable and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, you know, where he's like, of course it's hummable if you're familiar with it, if you've heard it for a long time, but it's not like what he's striving for to write hummable hit tunes you know he writes music that responds to the emotion and responds especially to the 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 lyrics um we we, you know when you watch a Sondheim musical the book is there that's all well and good but you're really waiting to dig into the fantastic lyrics that he has created for the show you know that's like the show-stopping um part of his art and I think for him, those kind of commercial interests like uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber obviously had uh, throughout his career were not as important. And there were people that helped him on his way and that and that saw his vision as an important part of the American theatrical landscape, you know, and, and helped to make it happen. Even though he didn't always make money on those musicals, you know, we're still talking about them. Sure. And will be for a long time. I think there's something cerebral about it. I hate to use that word. Sometimes it's pejorative, but there's something, you know, I would, if I'm looking at the Venn diagram, I, I would say that um, Sondheim and a New Yorker subscriber are probably more likely to overlap. Uh, and because mm-hmm. the New Yorker never tries to outsell us magazine <laughs> because it's trying to do something different. So too is, is Sondheim trying to do something in the theater. But the, the big thing is, and, and Tim, you would know more about this than me, is that it's a magnificently hard reach. Sondheim is never easy. And yeah. I'm always impressed at the number of community <laughs> theaters that try to take on Sondheim. Well, because yeah. it's 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 really tough. It there is, is no tough. easy Sondheim it, to do. It, right? Well, there's it Into the Woods. Tough. I mean, that's sort of like the but the, the it's still go-to. a big reach. It yeah. still is. It's, it's, a, a, it's a very I, long I lyrics. Show. I yeah. did Jack in Woods when I was 19, and I still have lyrics stuck in my head at 52. <laughs> they won't go away. So, <laughs> so, I'm yeah. sorry for your wakeless nights. <laughs> <laughs> if you have to work hard enough on something, it just it goes there. Yeah. Um. And so I guess, you know, I mean, from the artist's perspective, at least coming up when I did, which is late 80s, 90s, we were never aware that Sondheim wasn't popular because we loved him. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So we were yeah. never aware of that. Um, when I, you know, got into assassins, I realized, well, this probably isn't popular. <laughs> you know, then <laughs> <laughs> you you got into classical music, and you were like, this is really not popular. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I mean, with the exception of "Send in the Clowns," there's not a there's not a radio hit out there. Yeah. You know, I mean, Although there's some a lot well of it, recorded yeah, yeah. versions of everything. It, it's interesting though when we talk about tunes that stick in your head. It's also the lyrics really with Sondheim that stick in your head. Yeah. And you go back to his early years when he was writing lyrics because those were the jobs he had when he did West Side Story and he did Gypsy. Oh, I, I Gypsy, think that right. his, yeah, his right. yeah. yeah, I think that his words and his crafting of the words had a profound effect on the composers. I mean, Bernstein really, really got into the groove mm-hmm. of those songs in West Side Story, which again, were not a big hit until they got picked up by other popular artists, you know, and recorded. But, um, you, know, you, you know, I would say, too, that, uh, um, you know, the, the, the themes and characters here in Sondheim are not, these are not uh, easy people. They're complicated people. Yeah. Uh, uh, alienation, uh, the difficulty of love in, in the world. Uh, these are the, uh, the themes that, that he's dealing with, um, you know. Uh, and they're not necessarily feel-good themes. So, right. know, even a show like Company is really about. I mean, he would. He he said at one point. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here that the theme of Company was that uh, you have these these five couples and this one man, uh, unconnected man. And the theme of the the show is that uh, finding a being in a committed relationship. Uh, is incredibly difficult, but being alone is impossible. Now, <laughs> you know, so you're like, well, no wonder, you know, they weren't rushing to, to buy tickets for that. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't yeah. lend itself to a big deal. But you know what? I have to so. say, is there a better song or a better even opera aria than Being Alive? I mean, that yeah. is such a no. work of genius. <laughs> and and the, the other side of the, the issue here that I would argue is that all this, Stuff about Sondheim not being hummable and the music not being accessible. I think that is all. Uh, I'm looking for a swear word here. I'm going to leave it. Hooey. We'll leave call it hooey. That works. Yeah. Malarkey. The music actually is extraordinarily hummable. It's incredibly melodic. Yeah. Um, uh, on a very, very deep level. And if you spend uh, a little bit of time, you don't have to study it like a Talmudic scholar. If you just spend a little bit of time with it, and um, the, the the pleasures will reveal themselves over time. That's, you know, uh, masters of, of, of music, of art, of, of drama, of... of uh, they don't... One of the things about masterpieces is they don't give up their secrets all at once. Um, you keep getting more and more and more of them, and I defy anyone to listen to a song like, oh, well, the, the, uh, the Miller's Son, or uh, um, or A Weekend in the Country from A Little Night. I defy anyone to listen to those songs, or Being Alive, uh, uh, and not, or I'm Still Here, and not come away with the the melodic genius of Sondheim too. So. Yeah. Um, that, that's my view. Not everyone shares it. I think all of us here on this panel probably do. Um, so I think our job is is to go out and convert others. Which uh, did you ever convert your parents after the Zach after them? <laughs> I did. I did. And yeah. uh, it, it's funny. We were just talking about Sondheim uh, when he passed, and you know, by by now. <laughs> Uh, you know, history seems to have you know cleared up all the the guilty conscience. We've always loved Sondheim. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But you know, Mark, one of the things in your your article that I thought was was certainly prescient for the moment, but also a, fan- a fascinating topic to dive into is you know we do see these um, opera houses putting on Sweeney Todd or little yeah. music. Right. Um, I and, saw it in, in Chicago years ago, yeah. And it, 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 it's persuasively done. Uh, some would say that's crossover programming, but some would say it's also really appropriate. So, you know, I think we will continue to see Sondheim have his his day and his, his 
um, he has had so many late career bows and revivals, and yeah. I think it's going to continue on. We'll see it with you know the movie uh, adaptation of uh, West Side Story coming out, the um, Spielberg uh, production, which will be which by all accounts is, is pretty great. Yeah, so, so I mean it, th- these are going to continue to be in our 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 psyche, you know, sixty years after they were written, and. Yeah. Um, and I think that we'll continue to see more and more of that activity going, whether it's into opera houses or uh, you know, symphony stages, whatever it ends well, up Well, somebody needs to bring the Sondheim songbook to the stage with symphony orchestras, you know, like that you've done with some of the other uh, package events for Tol- Toledo Symphony. Zach is over Sorry. there writing it down. Could, <laughs> yeah. could you say that again, Brad? I Sondheim <laughs> songbook for orchestra. <laughs> Right, well, I, I mean, because mean, they lend course, themselves to that course. because of the high melody, and you know, there, there, there is Rachmaninoff. I think that's that's really helpful. But th- there was something, Mark, in your your interview with him, where he talked about Verdi and he talked about Wagner, and the role that music plays in those composers' operas is very different than the role that Sondheim placed music. You know, um, and I think for the reasons that 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 is true, Sondheim. You know, reacted rather negatively to to Verdi versus Berg, um, and you know, taking on a symphonic a- adaptation of the Sondheim song- songbook um, is therefore more challenging, but possibly more rewarding. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean the, go ahead, Mark. Oh, just that that whole discussion about uh, opera and what he. Uh, I mean, the headline is he, you know, he says, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an opera fan. Well, that's it's a little more complicated than that. Um, but he, generally speaking, uh, um, you know, he 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 would say that um, people in, interested in opera are interested in in the voice, and he was interested in the song. And the operas generally don't move fast enough for him. Uh, they have, they're filled with what you know he call, called the long airs, the, those moments of repose where everything stops and the singer just belts out uh, an aria. And <laughs> and for him, um, he was interested in telling telling stories through music. No. Uh, and and uh, um, I thought it was interesting that that um, you know he responds. He he loves the first act of. Of Peter Grimes, uh, and yeah. and of course he would. If you listen to Peter Grimes, you hear the same themes of alienation and the same kinds of harmonic ideas that you hear in um, in Sondheim. Uh, uh, he likes Porgy and Bess, but he thinks it's too long. He likes he loves Carmen, but he thinks it's too long. Mm-hmm. Um, no. He doesn't like Wagner. He loves Berg's Bozek. Well, of yeah. course he. It's, yeah. it's such a compact drama telling the story through song yeah. with this character of immense complexity and psychological alienation. Of course he would love it. Yeah. It's so interesting. And I think that what he was fighting against in the traditional opera mold was the same thing he was fighting against in the traditional musical theater mold, this idea of the show-stopping moments, you know, literally stopping the show, stopping the drama, to sing about what just happened or to, you know, express... Joy, here we've we finally confessed our love to each other. Now let's sing about it for ten minutes, right? <laughs> I, I think that that probably was the the whole rubric that he was rejecting when he yeah. said, you know, I don't really care for opera, that kind of thing. Um, Mark, we're going to have to wrap it up fairly soon, but I, I want to hear a little bit about the book that you wrote, Jazz from Detroit, because. This is a fascinating compendium of all these wonderful jazz artists who I really was not familiar with, a lot of names that I hadn't heard before. Um, You talked a little bit about your jazz pedigree kind of growing up. Um, How did this book come to be? Well, um, if you're into jazz, you very early on from listening to records and reading liner notes and the like begin to get a sense of the fact that in the middle of the 20th century, a lot of great, important, influential jazz musicians came out of Detroit. Um, I'm talking about people like uh, Hank Thad and Elvin Jones, uh, uh, Barry Harris, Thomas Flanagan, Ron Carter, Paul Chambers, uh, Louis Hayes, uh, Roy Brooks, uh, Charles McPherson, uh, Donald Byrd, Curtis Fuller. These are all uh, heroes of the music. Um, uh, 
In fact, the, the theme of my book is that you can't tell the story of jazz in America without also telling the story of jazz from Detroit, that so many uh, musicians who um, influence the direction of the music over the last 70 years have been from Detroit, that these are inseparable histories. And so when you when you grow up in, uh, with music, you begin to get a little bit of sense of that. And then when I moved here to Detroit, I began to understand just how... Um, that the that the the music ran even deeper than that here. Uh, how deeply embedded it was in the culture, and what, and that there were these particular social, cultural, and uh, economic factors that sort of led to this explosion of jazz in the middle of the twentieth century in Detroit, and then and then allowed the music uh, to that Detroit began managed to sustain its uh, influence in jazz up till the present day, even as the city has declined in population uh, yeah. and economic power. And so, you know, there are interesting reasons for that, and, and they have to do with the uh, the great migration bringing African Americans to the North, the, the auto industry developing a thriving black middle and working class, the great public school music programs in Detroit in the middle of the 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, and important mentors in the community. The pianist Barry Harris, who taught everybody in the 1950s and then into the present day with, with mentors like Marcus Belgrade, the great trumpeter, who uh, gave birth uh, spiritually to a, a whole new generation of important jazz musicians that today, like people like uh, uh, the bassist Robert Hurst and the saxophonist Kenny Garrett and the violinist Regina Carter, all of them coming mm-hmm, up under mm-hmm. uh, Marcus Belgrade's wing. And so, uh, uh, you know, the... I began to get a sense of that and wanted and 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 thought that the world needed to to sort of hear that story and and understand all these great jazz musicians in context and really to, by putting a frame around all of these influential players you begin to to, to see that um, Detroit uh, one of its and some would argue, I would argue maybe its greatest cultural legacy. Uh, in music is not Motown, but actually mm. the jazz musicians that it gave birth to uh, that have sustained this most American of art form. Yeah, that's so interesting because we do think of Motown, you know, as like the quintessential music genre that came out of Detroit, but its influence on jazz and the way that you tied that into like the the cultural story as well, I think is is so interesting for folks maybe who aren't even, you know, steeped in jazz in the same way that you are, but who are interested in history, who are interested in the culture of uh, our area, especially, and in Detroit, there's there's a lot of story to tell there. Um, yeah. and, and a lot going on in the classical world even today, you know, so maybe your next book can be classical from Detroit, maybe, perhaps? Well, I, I like I, classical I, from Toledo better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did write a book uh, a couple of years ago, a short book uh, for the Detro- uh, on commission from the Detroit Symphony about the 100-year uh, history of Orchestra Hall, the great concert mm-hmm. hall in Detroit, which opened um, October 23rd, uh, 1919, and uh, has had a very distinguished history. And, and uh, you can get that book um, uh, through the Detroit Symphony. Uh, but uh, the point I want to make is that uh, all of the history of Detroit, uh, it's the history, it's, it's issues with race, um, the, the influence of the automobile industry, the rise and fall of the city as an industrial power. All of that um, uh, funnels into and through this 100-year history of mm-hmm. Orchestra Hall. And I think it's sort of the same uh, in the jazz book, which is to say that the, you cannot separate the history of jazz from Detroit from the this um, eventful, infuriating, frustrating, glorious history of the city of Detroit. That it's all linked together, and and so even if you're not interested in say classical music per se or jazz per se, I hope that the books will give you something. Um, I hope they'll spark an interest in those things. But I also think you'll you'll be able to see how culture is tied to community, uh, which is a very important idea that I think becomes more and more important uh, as we go forward. I think uh, I, you, you can talk about the Toledo Symphony uh, or any other symphony orchestra. Those that are successful are those that are those that are most connected 
to their community on all kinds of levels. Um, and I think if you look at the history of, of Detroit and its relationship with music, you see that. truth. Mark, I am so happy you just said that because I, I have seen that book uh, about the DSO, and, and I apologize, I did not know it was yours. But I, I, I do remember um, being fascinated, especially with the, the story about the uh, Paradise Theater. Um, it kind of brings the two topics that you're talking about, community and, and music um, and, and performance, uh, together for Detroit. And it's, it's, it's brilliantly done. Well done. Yeah. yeah. For, for, those, for those that don't know, the Paradise Theater uh, is Orchestra Hall. Uh, when the symphony moved out in, in the 1930s, the, um, uh, the hall became the Paradise Theater, uh, a center for all of the greatest black entertainment in, in, in America. So, uh, uh, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Billy Eckstein, Billy Holiday, Charlie Parker, Sarah Vaughn, all of these people played the Paradise Theater in the 1950s. And, and just to put a fine point on this idea of community, when, when Orchestra Hall fell into disrepair and was going to be knocked down in the 1970s and a grassroots movement started to save it, one of the things that really powered that uh, movement was that it wasn't just that Orchestra Hall was remembered as a great classical venue. All of Detroit, uh, including its African-American population, who uh, remembered uh, uh, Orchestra Hall as the Paradise Theater and had such a close connection to it uh, in that way, meant that um, that movement to save the hall took in so much of Detroit's goodwill from all across its citizenry. And um, that's, a, that's an interesting story. It tells you something about the power of, of art and music and a, and a venue to create a sense of place in which everyone in the city can share in its, um, uh, its glory. Um, what, could be a, a, what, what could be a better metaphor for um, uh, American art and American culture than that? Totally. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up uh, here because we're running out of time. But I do want to mention, Mark, that uh, you have a website for the book. It's jazzfromdetroit.com. Is that it? That's correct. Yeah, folks can uh, go right there and find it there. Um, Now, if they want to find this interview that you did with Stephen Sondheim, that's on the uh, Detroit Free Press website right now, which is, uh, tell me if I'm right with this, it's freep.com? Okay, freep.com. We'll link to that on our website as well, so folks can go visit all of that, read it to their heart's content. Mark Stryker, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, hopefully we'll get you back on the uh, program someday in the future. Anytime. I, I really enjoyed being with all of you today. Thank you so much. This program is a production of WGTE Public Media in collaboration with our sponsor, the Toledo Symphony, with generous support from the Rita Barber Kern Foundation. You can download episodes of this program as a podcast by going to our website at wgte.org lab. You can also subscribe to us through your podcast app of choice, including Apple and Google Podcasts. Don't forget you can check out all the upcoming events of the symphony by visiting their website at toledosymphony.com and their various social media outlets on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find the TSO streaming platform online at stream.artstoledo.com. My thanks to Zach Vassar, Tim Lake, and again to our special guest, Mark Stryker. I'm Brad Cresswell, and this has been Toledo Symphony Lab from FM 91.